I invite you to open up your copy of the Scripture and join me in John chapter 1, verse 19. John chapter 1 and verse 19. There's two large sections in this remaining part of this chapter. We're going to look at this morning, verses 19 through 51. 19 through 34 is focused heavily on John, and then it pivots to focus heavily on Jesus. And so this morning, uh, there's really two points for our sermon. And they come in the form of two questions. So if you are there in John chapter 1, verse 19, I'm going to give you this up front. Jerry asked me if we could have the slides show like my sermon outline because you may be a lot like Jerry. In fact, many of you are because I lose you somewhere along the line and then it's like point three or four or something like that and where are we? Well, we know we're in the Bible, but we lost all that. So could we have them up there on the screen? And I said, well, the problem with that is me. Uh, I'm not always sure about those points in time for the preparation of what takes place on a Sunday morning, and so, um, yeah, I'll try to do better. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make it really simple this morning, okay? Here's the big idea. If you know Jesus Christ, you should be telling others about him with confidence that he will actually draw people to himself. That's it. Close your Bibles, we can go home. Well, we got to do communion, right? Um, If you know Jesus Christ, you should tell others about him with confidence that he will draw people to himself. That's the, the big argument. And we see that argument come about with two questions, all right? So the first question relates to verses 19 through 34, and it is this. What is your purpose? What is your mission? We're going to answer that with the reminder that just as God sent John to be his forerunner, God has sent us to be his witnesses about the uniqueness of Jesus. So first question, what is your mission? What is your purpose? And it's going to really challenge us to think about how we are living, because maybe we've been living in our own mission on, for our own purposes, and this is going to be a corrective for some. The second question is simply, how do you accomplish the mission? And that comes from verses 35 through 51. How do you accomplish your mission? Well, we accomplish it by telling others about Jesus, trusting that he will bring them to himself. And therefore, we get our big idea that for those of us who know Jesus, we are to tell others about him in confidence that he will draw people to himself. Now, let's see how this unfolds from the text. It sounds biblical. It sounds like Christian stuff. If you've been around the church for a while, you've probably heard this before, that Christians are supposed to tell people about Jesus. And we know that uh, Jesus will strike a chord with some people, and with other people, they will reject him. So this may not be an epiphany kind of sermon, 
but it is one that is both biblical and thoughtful because John, as we saw last week, has set us up to tell us the story of, the, of his gospel. In the first 18 verses, he gives us a prologue. He introduces all kinds of themes and ideas and teachings that will be teased out throughout the book. And so now, here we are at the end of chapter 1, and we are introduced to many of the characters of the gospel, and in fact, to some specific ways that make Jesus unique. And so we'll see that here. Follow along as I read from verses 19 through 34. And remember, this is, what is your mission? What is your purpose? You were sent to testify to others about the uniqueness of Jesus. So we're going to see both what our purpose is and what makes Jesus unique in these verses. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. John receives a bunch of questions about his identity. So John's out in the wilderness, far from the temple, far from the religious elites, but his ministry is gaining a lot of attention. And so those religious leaders are questioning who is this guy and do we need to be concerned about him? And what you need to understand about these verses is they are full of things that are totally lost on us as readers today. Last week we read in verses 6 and 15 that John the Baptist bore witness about Jesus. And what we see here is what that looked like in real life. We need to understand that the questions that he is pummeled with by these Jews, these Levites, and these priests 
who were sent by the Pharisees, that those questions are not rooted as like, hey, I'd like to know more about you. They're actually rooted in suspicion and control. You see, John, not only was his lifestyle unique, but his ministry didn't fit a paradigm that was accustomed in that day. And so it's obvious to everybody that God is using him, but how and who is this guy? So they had questions. Who was he claiming to be? Where did he see himself fitting into all these Old Testament figures that were expected to come? And that's why we read of things like, are you the Christ? Are you Elijah or the prophet? These were titles and terms that were somewhat eschatological for the Jews of that day. That meant they were looking for someone who would so come when they came, it would be paradigm shifting. And everybody's excited about these prospects because it meant so much for an oppressed people, for a downtrodden people. You see, John was ministering much like a time as ours. Nationalism, religious zeal, political intrigues, oppressions, insurrections, they all abounded. And it wasn't uncommon for the Jewish people to see someone's star rise quickly and this person would make a name for themselves and then lead people away. They would try to overthrow the Romans. They might even try to overthrow the Jewish authorities and they would try to make a name for themselves. They would claim one of these titles. I am the Messiah. I am Elijah. I am the prophet. So what are these titles? Well, just quickly, the Christ that John refers to is literally means Messiah or the Anointed One. And if you remember, back in our study in 1 Samuel, we saw as the Spirit of God came upon Saul and enabled him to do a great work, but that Spirit was only temporary, right? But did you listen as John spoke in verses 33 through 35? that the Spirit would descend upon the Christ and would remain unlike Saul. So the Christ was this anointed one who had a special task for God. He would be called the Christ, the Messiah, and what that actually meant is quite honestly hard to determine. Because depending on what commentator you read or what person that you would have talked to in the first century there in Jerusalem, there were many views on what the Messiah would be. Some thought he would bring peace. Others thought he stressed a righteousness and he would do away with sin. Some thought that due to the Roman occupation that he would be a military ruler and that he would save Israel from the Romans, and he would lead an army against them, and he would establish the boundaries, and he would create Israel as the new David, a better David. Some thought he would be a clearly supernatural visitation from God. Others, he would just be a descendant of David who would be the most recent occupier of the throne. But anyway, that's a term that's used to ask if, if, um, if John B. is the Christ. Are you the one that we're looking for? He's also asked, are you Elijah? And this comes from Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, where in the Old Testament, the, the last book in our Old Testament, it, the 
the Lord prophesied through the prophet Malachi and said, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Now we learn a little bit more of John's message from the other Gospels. You might hear me use the term synoptic today. And if you're not familiar with that, that means that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these three Gospels are often put together in a category called the synoptics. And in those Gospels, we read that John's ministry was calling people to repentance for the kingdom of God was at hand. And that had language that meant the judgment is about to come. Get ready for it. And so perhaps whether it was John's dress, wearing camel skins, living in the wilderness, maybe that's what reminded people of him as an Elijah type. Or was he that great prophet that was predicted that would come right before the day of judgment? Well, John denies it. No, you got me wrong again. Well, then you are the prophet, the one that Moses predicted, who would speak the words of God all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verses 15 through 18. This special end time figure who even the Samaritans identified as the prophet with the promised Messiah. So is John any of these characters? He says no. In fact, what does John say that he is? He is the voice. I'm not up onto my pop culture, but I know the voice. He is not that voice. He is not a judge for singers and talents. But he quotes this unique passage from Isaiah chapter 40. So let's turn there for a moment because I think this is really important for us to hear. We could, we could debate all the different things that he is not, but when he says, this is what I am, and you look at Isaiah chapter 40 and you read this, which is why it's in one of the questions for our life groups this week, to read through this chapter and see what it says, not only about John, but also the Lord we see some interesting things. John quotes Isaiah chapter 40 in verse 3. And he says almost verbatim, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, what's interesting is in the Old Testament, that scripture was given to a people who were living in exile. And metaphorically, the prophet is saying, someone needs to say, make all the roads smooth, straight, and flat, for God's people are going to return from exile. So you have these armies. You imagine marching through the Black Hills and all the zigzagging you have to do to get up over the top of a hill because none of us have the stamina to go straight over it. And in the Old Testament, there was this understanding that there would be one coming that would, in fact, call for the road system in the desert to be improved, to level the hills, and to make a way that is easy for God's people to return to their land. Straighten out the curves. But even in Isaiah, the end of the exile is actually pointing to something even greater. It's a type of the final return of the Lord for a far greater return because it promises a salvation, 
a greater redemption that is offered to God's people through his suffering servant. Because Isaiah 40 comes before Isaiah 52, we see that the prophet is saying, make way, make a way ready for this suffering servant. And John is tapping into all that imagery. He is that voice who's asking Israel to prepare themselves for a greater one. And so we come back to this question then. If you're not Jesus, or if you're not the Christ, you're not Elijah, then the prophet, then why are you baptizing? And John says, well, because this is what I must do. This is what I'm called to do. He says, in fact, there's one coming after me that I can't even do the lowest level of a servant for uh, taking the shoes off my master. I'm not even worthy of doing that. I am baptizing with water, but there is one here you don't know about. And so I must reveal his uniqueness to you. And look at what, how he does it in verses 29 through 34. John twice states in verse 31 and 33 that he doesn't know who the one would, that was coming, who it was. John's like, I didn't know who he was. Verse 31, I myself did not know him. Verse 33, I myself did not know him. Well, how is John going to call people to get ready for a guy he, he has no clue who it is? Well, in God's grace, he sent John a message. And he says, I'm going to give you a sign. The Spirit will descend on him like a dove, and it will remain on him. It won't be a temporary task that I have for him. He will be filled with my Spirit. And then when John saw that sign, he made three statements about Jesus. You look at verse 29 and 36. He declared that Jesus was the Lamb of God. He also declared that Jesus is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit in verse 33. And then in verse 34, he declares that Jesus is the Son of God. So while everybody's wondering who John is, John's not at all interested in making a big deal about who he is. He's just a voice. He's unique. He's not like any other prophet or any other person of that day. He had a unique ministry, but it was to point to the uniqueness of the one who was coming, the uniqueness of the one that John saw the Spirit descend upon. Now, I realize these are some heavy concepts for us, but we have to see as we fulfill our mission that it is not about, as I said last week, it is a scary thing for us to share the gospel with unbelievers. We're scared for a lot of reasons. One, that we'll mess up. One, that we feel the weight, that it's all on us to do it right in order to get this result. And if we don't, then there's no hope for that person because we mess things up irreparably. There's also the fear of rejection. There's the fear of just the unknowns of what will come. And if we have enough answers, there's lots and lots of fears. But the reality is that when John saw this sign descend on Jesus... John became even more bold in his witness. He became more clear about who Jesus was, more certain. And he says that he is the Lamb of God, he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit, and he is the Son of God. 
John wasn't afraid of his calling. He understood that he was, his mission and his purpose were to point out the uniquenesses of Jesus. That's all we're called to do, church. Jesus, what does it mean that he's the Lamb of God? What does it mean that he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit? What does it mean that he's the Son of God? Let's take a moment and look at these. What does it mean that Jesus is the Lamb of God? Well, some argue that John had in his mind the warrior lamb of the first century apocalyptic writing, a figure that had immense strength, who in, as we see later in John's writings, Revelation 5, is an image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that the Lamb of God was a judge. But even if that's true, it's hard to believe that John would have missed out on all the sacrificial language of the Old Testament. And so we need to keep in mind, uh, John had an ethical call in his preaching. He called people to repent. He says here that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in verse 29. What does that mean? Does he remove sin from the world? Or is he the sacrifice for sin? Well, this is the beauty of the gospel. It can mean both things. John says that Jesus is the Lamb, and it would have had to, for these readers, come up with some really poignant points of time in the Old Testament. So let me just remind you. You remember uh, Genesis 22? I think there's a movie about it now. Uh, The one and only son or something like that. Abraham and Isaac going up to the Mount Moriah, and he is going to offer his son as a sacrifice. And God provided a lamb as a substitute. I've already mentioned Isaiah 53, and in that chapter, we read of this this lamb of God, this suffering servant, who would be led to the slaughter for the sins of God's people, who would not protest, who would not fight against it. But perhaps most likely, the readers of John's gospel would have thought immediately of the Passover lamb that comes to us from Exodus 12. And John is, he's clear that this is a unique person who came for a unique purpose. He was sent by God to give an atonement for people who could not pay for it. As we saw last week, this grace is a gift. It comes to us, not because of birth Not because of blood, not because of the will of man or the will of the flesh, but it's given to us by God. I think if the priest were to lay his hands on the head of this goat or this lamb, he is transferring the guilt of the people to the animal. The creature then would be, one would be released in the wilderness to proclaim the removal of guilt. Others would be sacrificed. And there is the essence of the gospel here. Because some of us today are struggling under the weight of guilt. And let me just tell you, Jesus Christ really is the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. He can pronounce to you that your sins are indeed forgiven. That your lawless acts will be remembered no more, as Hebrews 10, 17 says. 
And then there's the scope of the Lamb's ministry. Not only does he offer himself as a substitute, but he takes away the sin of the world. Every kind of sin is covered. There's nothing that you've done that can't be propitiated by the blood of Jesus. Praise God for that, right? There is no sin that's too heinous, no wickedness that's too terrible, no habitual failure that's too often repeated that it cannot be taken away by Christ, our heavenly Lamb. But John also declared that Jesus was the baptizer with the Holy Spirit in verses 32 and 33. Remember I said that the the Christ and the Messiah are the same titles, two different terms referring to the same office or person. And uh, the Messiah is the one who is anointed with the Spirit. And John is now telling all his followers and all who are hearing him that Jesus, John is calling people to repentance and to be baptized in preparation for the one that was coming. And John now says, this one will baptize you, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. John's baptism is, is somewhat of an initiation rite. It's a preparation. It's, it was public. It was done by immersion. It was a sign of separation and preparation. But Jesus' baptism will go even further. Jesus is the one through whom we are initiated into God's kingdom through the receiving of life through God the Holy Spirit. We're born again into the kingdom of God, into the family of God. And so Jesus' baptism is far greater than John's. That's why we urge any and all who have, in fact, placed their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and have received the Holy Spirit as a sign and a seal and a witness to be baptized publicly by immersion as an outward sign of that inward reality. But in verse 34, we also see that John called Jesus the Son of God. He's unique in that he's the sacrificial lamb. He's unique in that he gives us the Holy Spirit, and he is the Son of God. Nathaniel would echo this in verse 49. In John's gospel, Jesus will more often than not call himself the Son of Man, but he will also call himself the Son of God. He does so in John 3.16. In John 3.35 and 36. In John 5. He does this at uh, the tomb of Lazarus in John 11. This title, the Son of God, was given to Jesus at his baptism by the Father according to the synoptic Gospels in Matthew and Luke. It's, it's central to this whole unique role of who Jesus is. If we're here to be witnesses about Jesus' uniqueness, we are not creating followers of Elon Musk or any great athlete. We are not creating followers of someone, a political person. We're, we're helping people understand the uniqueness of Jesus. As the Lamb of God the one who gives the Holy Spirit, the one who indeed is the Son of God. As the Son of God, Jesus brings delight to the heart of the Father and to ours as well when we follow him. And so in this term, this title that John gives him, Jesus is, John is calling people to prepare for this understanding that Jesus is so unique that John has attached deity to him. 
God sent him to bear witness about Jesus. Verses 6 through 8 tell us. And it's true that his purpose, his setting, and his office as a forerunner were unique for John B. There was only one John the Baptist. And yet, the synoptics all end with the same thing, where Jesus is commissioning his disciples to go and tell others. Tell others who Jesus is. What if that were your mission statement? What if your mission wasn't to just accumulate as much wealth, make sure your kids were outfitted with the nice stuff that they need, or even the good stuff of this life? What if your mission wasn't just about securing your future, but to see that God sent you as a witness, to bear witness about that light that all might believe through him? You are not the light, but you came to bear witness about the light. That's what we read in John 1, verses 6 through 8. We have been sent, we have been saved to share the gospel. And this isn't a sermon that's designed to make us all feel terrible, right? I'm not David Platt. I don't have that ability to make us all feel like we need to sell everything and we need to go live overseas in a hut and die from some disease and infection and we just suffer for Jesus and try to smile and be happy about it. Let me give you an application that's much more attainable. Tell somebody about why Jesus is more than a curse word. What makes him unique? Perhaps it's the one that can baptize us with the Holy Spirit so that actually we are changed in our hearts. And going back to the drink, going back to whatever, we're freed from that. Maybe it's the fact that you can have the forgiveness of your sins through the Lamb of God. Maybe it's that Jesus is God, not a prophet. Tell somebody about the uniqueness of Jesus. Take time. Inconvenience yourself. Plan to talk to that neighbor, to that coworker. You don't have to go around the world to serve Jesus or to share Jesus. You can talk to those around you. As you get to know your friends and your neighbors and you see them struggling with the effects of sin, uh, the choices that they're making or the choices that others have made and brought trauma or suffering into their lives, you can talk to them about how these consequences do hurt, but there is a great comforter. And there is one who can transform them. How do you fulfill this mission? Let's look at verses 35 through 51. And this will be a shorter section. I'm going to read through it, and then we'll walk our way through it. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. He looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. This was the second time he said it. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed him. They followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. 
Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Our first question is, what is your mission? John made it clear by his own testimony. Our mission is to tell people about the uniqueness of Jesus. And now what we see here in the rest of the passage is how do you fulfill your mission? And it's simple. As we watch these men who are drawn to Jesus, go and get others and bring them to Jesus. And in fact, Jesus himself calls and draws people. So how do you fulfill your mission? You point others to Jesus. You look at verse 35 and 36. John gives up his own followers and points them to Jesus. This is not a selfish man. He is not about himself. He is clear on what his mission is and his calling. And it's to point people to Jesus. In the first 18 verses, our eyes have been lifted up to the glories of heaven And we see this eternal, divine, creative word who comes into his world. And verses 35 through 51 demonstrates how that incarnate word will interact with everyday people who are burdened, who are busy, who are troubled with many things. In a real way, Jesus is already doing what he said Nathaniel would see in verse 51. He begins to surround himself with disciples. That's not an unusual thing in that day. If you were a teacher, you would have people clamoring to come and sit at your feet and learn from you. What's unique about Jesus, though, is that he's actually going out to find his disciples. They're not coming to him. As a matter of practical observation, as we look at John's selflessness, I wonder if we should be selfish. As a church... We are about to launch out a lot of families who are moving away. We've already sent some away this this year. The Blossers, the Paines, and there's more in the wings. Work is transferring them. Military is transferring them. That may be true for our pastoral team, just as it is for members, that sometimes people are here for a season, and then we bless them, and we pray over them, and we send them out. We cannot be selfish in this. It's not about us having the biggest church in Rapid City or anywhere for that matter. 
It's about us doing the mission of equipping. You know, we are here to make more and better disciples of Jesus. And so as we do that, we need to trust the great shepherd has plans for taking his people and moving them and spreading them into other congregations. We're not to be selfish in thinking that they're all supposed to be here with us forever. I know if you're an employer, you invest a lot of time into your employees, and it's hard to see them go and benefit a company that's not yours, maybe even a competitor. What about educators or doctors or even pastors? Here's John practicing what he preached. We live at a time where there is jealousy, where there is competitiveness, where greed holds sway in the world and even in the church. But we need churches. We need churches that are full of Christians who willingly lay aside their personal ambitions and the name recognition for the greater name of Jesus, for his preeminence, for the advance of his kingdom. I wonder what this might look like in your life instead of trying to keep followers or keep people close to you to be able to say, you know what, I'm going to invest in you knowing that God may move you on, and I'm going to just keep doing that. You see in Jesus' interactions in verses 37 through 51, these two disciples And he shows a lot of patience and understanding. He engages four disciples that are named. Andrew, Philip, Peter, and Nathaniel. And then the fifth is unnamed. Some think that maybe it was John the Apostle who wrote this gospel. And he didn't want to bring attention to himself. But as you look at how Jesus interacts with each of these people, he does it not in a technique way. We're not looking at these verses as like, here's how to do evangelism. Again, this is the uniqueness of Jesus, that he can see a man who's sitting miles away under a fig tree, and that is thought that that Nathaniel was some kind of a teacher, religious teacher, because they would often take up a place under a fig tree. There was some significance there. But either way, Jesus sees a guy. You can't do that. I mean, unless you've got some government satellite access that we don't know about. But you're not going to see people who are on the other side of the wall. And none of us have the ability to rename somebody. Hey, I'm Simon, son of John. No, you're not. Your name's Cephas. Okay. Yeah, thanks. Uh, don't really like Cephas. Um, I'm going to stick with son of John, Simon. So this, this shows us the uniqueness of Jesus of meeting people where they are, and he doesn't demand that anybody, like, totally commit to him right away. He's patient with them. Come and see. Follow me. I think over time, when we try to evangelize and we're, we're like arm wrestling people, you're going to say you love Jesus. You're going to commit and you're going to confess and I'm going to make an argument that is just going to so convince you that you, you're just painted in a corner and there's nothing else to say but yes. Maybe we would be better served to say, you know what, I want to make you thirsty for Jesus. I, I want to so aggravate your thinking with someone who is a sacrificial atonement, with someone who is divine, with someone who can give life-changing power, that I'm, gonna, I'm just going to sprinkle some breadcrumbs. And I'm going to ask you to just keep following. Nibble on that block of cheese. Keep pursuing Jesus. 
We see that as Jesus interacts with all these disciples, some of them are bold and become great leaders in the church, and some of them, ironically enough, Nathaniel, who is the one that Jesus talks the most with in this passage, pretty much drops off the picture. I mean, he's a disciple of Jesus, but he never becomes one of the twelve. He's not Peter who becomes the leader of all the disciples. Even Philip and Andrew are a part of the twelve, but even they are quite... Uh, play a minor role as the Gospels unfold. Jesus confronts these people with grace and patience, and he does so in a way that shows us his character. He does something that we cannot do. However, we can see from them a response that is helpful for us. Go and get somebody else. Tell somebody about Jesus. I mean, if you're talking with someone about how hard life is, what better opportunity to say, come and meet someone who can change you. Philip did it. Andrew did it. What about you? There are so many important truths packed into this text. I'm going to just close with this. Jesus tells Nathaniel he is going to see greater things than this. Nathaniel... Your faith in me, while legitimate, I am the Son of God. Let me just say, I'm going to give you a whole lot more to hold on to than this one trick. Than this one thing of me seeing you where you were hours ago, miles away. I'm going to do things in your presence that will blow your mind. And he takes language from Jacob's experience in the book of Genesis where uh, he has this dream and he sees this ladder going from heaven to earth and these angels of God are moving up and down. And Jesus basically is saying, you know what? You, you know your history, Nathaniel. You're a student of the word. Well, I'm going to say this. What, what was temporary for Jacob, just a dream in one night... You're going to see it every day, 24-7 with me. You're going to see God using me to reshape this world that I created. And what's interesting is even though John predicted that Jesus was going to be rejected by the world, they didn't know him and his own people rejected him, we don't see any of that right here in this chapter. Everyone that Jesus interacts with becomes a follower of him. I mean, it's all good news so far, right? And John is introducing these characters because they're going to play a role as his narrative unfolds. We'll see that Jesus intentionally takes on significant titles and concepts and he claims them as his own. He uses the term Son of Man, Son of God. He will say that he is the Christ. He will say that he is the Lamb of God that was slain for the sins of the world. Jesus says, this appropriate, all these things, I fulfill them all. I think John is not just interested in us knowing who were the original members of the band of Jesus. I think he's highlighting how unique Jesus is and his unique interactions with these men in order to comfort us that our faith in him is legitimate. You see, they only saw in part, Nathaniel, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Old Testament prophecy said the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. We know from the synoptic gospels that that's where Jesus was born. But because of pressure, his family had to move. These these things that they only saw in part, we've got the full picture about Jesus. 
You can read the Gospels and see everything that he claimed to be and what he did and what he has promised he will do. Our Jesus is indeed the King of kings. He is risen. He is the Lord of lords. And he is bidding each and every one of us to follow him. we got brothers and sisters who are witnessing about Jesus to the nations around this world They're bringing the gospel to people who, like Andrew, might be explosive and potential leaders like Peter, who may be even withdrawn and struggling characters like Philip. There are even those that are earnest souls like Nathaniel. And there's every other category, whether these four men represents types of hearts or not. All the world can know who Jesus is if we just remember our mission to speak and to share, to point out the uniqueness. And you know what? We get to trust that in doing that, he will draw people to himself. It is not on us to convert people. It's on us to just point them to Jesus, how unique he is. And God is going to do the work. You see, the incarnate word has entered the world And like dropping a stone in a still body of water, ripples are going out. Jesus is becoming known. John loses two of his disciples to him. Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel join. The word is beginning to sound forth in his creation. And so far we see this positive response. It is the Spirit on Jesus that draws people to him. So as we close, knowing Jesus compels us to live on mission, to tell people about him. And we can do so with confidence as we point out his uniqueness that somewhere along the line, it may not be a 100% return, but there is going to be a return on our witness. God will draw people to himself. He did it in the beginning He'll continue to do it today. Lord, we pray that you would help us in this simple text to see how John lived on mission and he, we see how that took place, how we can live on mission. We, like Philip, need to go and find someone. We, like Andrew, need to go and tell our family. Why not start there, family and neighbors, people we know, and then to just keep spreading out as we gossip about the gospel We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be convinced by the signs that we too have seen that you indeed are not just the Lamb of God, but you are the Son of God. Help us, Father, as we look at our own lives and the work that you have done in us to become more bold in our witness. For we have the full picture. We see you completely. And we pray that you would Work and use us for your honor and glory, drawing people to yourself through our obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we look at communion, the reason that we're able to share this table is because we have made a confession that indeed Jesus is our lamb. He is our sacrificial lamb. He gave his life for us. And so we can come to this table having the confidence that our sins are cleansed because of Jesus. Not anything that we've done, but that we've received this gift. 
And so we celebrate this because we know he took a wrath that was meant for us, a judgment of God that we deserved. And Christ intended this supper to be celebrated, this table to be observed by churches, local churches who are gathering, believers who have placed their faith in the death, the resurrection, and the return of Christ. And so what we do here this morning is not just exclusive for the members of South Canyon Baptist Church. If you are a believer and a member in good standing with a like-minded church, we invite you as a guest here to join us in this celebration. But if you're not a believer and you're, you're like the trail of breadcrumbs, you're beginning to follow it perhaps with the, the gospel narrative, then we encourage you to just let these things go by. Watch us as we worship. And that's okay for you not to participate. In fact, we encourage it. Don't participate. Because Paul wrote a warning to the church in 1 Corinthians 11. He said that anybody that is not a believer, that eats this bread and drinks this cup, not that there's anything magic in them, but you are testifying to a truth that is not true in you. That you are actually eating and drinking damnation to yourself. You're bringing judgment upon yourself because you're, you're taking this ritual that we do, this ordinance that we practice, this expression of what has happened in our lives, you're profaning it. And so we encourage a non-Christian, please don't do that. Part of what Paul means here is that this supper is for those who recognize the realities behind these symbols, those who are Christians. And so let's take a moment of time for confession, for preparation, and then I'll pray and the men will come up and we will share the bread and the cup together.